as we go through, break down, and discuss the chapters of the book, Building the New Economy, Data as Capital. We're up to chapter seven today. We've been covering a couple chapters each week, but this week we're going to exclusively focus on chapter seven, which is health IT, algorithms, privacy, and data in healthcare. Uh, This chapter really uh, broke down where a lot of the technology that we've been talking about and a lot of the technology that these guys, these authors have developed at MIT can be used in the healthcare space. Uh, They talk about uh, the numerous benefits of uh, having the massive amounts of healthcare data uh, be more available for uh, the metadata, for um, just just with uh, how siloed healthcare information already is and how much more value we could all extract if it was more freely exchanged, albeit in a very secure way. Uh, they move on to talk about how healthcare over the last really just several years has transitioned away from the one-size-fits-all healthcare delivery approach to instead uh, what they call the Precision Medicine Institute, a, a more precise, tailored treatment and preventative strategies uh, to individuals based on their unique traits um, and how that makes data and analysis uh, more and more important than ever before. Uh, eventually, the authors go into their uh, their Opal centric system, which is their uh, what, what's the name of that again, Dylan? Their yeah, their the Open algorithm. Yeah, their uh, which we'll get to. Then they they put forth a number of different use cases and uh, detailing just how they envision their their systems being used. But that's a good high level overview. Uh, parts of the chapter deep dive into the systems that they propose themselves. But uh, I'll just kick it back to you, Dylan. Was there anything in this big healthcare chapter that stuck out to you? Anything that you you really liked? Yeah, totally. There's so much here. Uh, and then OPAL, I had to look at the notes. It's open algorithm layer. So right. what was really interesting about that is that I think we, I've heard that before. I've heard about this before because whenever you sign into like a website or an app, I'm pretty sure it's using something like that. So there's the front end where you're, I, th- I think, uh, where the boundary, the client is using like this front end thing and then the data providers are on the back end. So we've been talking about these data exchange ideas. And so what I really loved about this chapter was a very technical deep dive into how the data actually goes from one, call it silo, into another repository or, or how, how it's read. Maybe the data doesn't move around, but you, you access it in different ways. And then how it can all fit in with healthcare IT and healthcare analysis. So actually getting into some use cases at the end. So I really liked it because it just helped me understand a lot more. And you hear about these terms a lot, but to actually to actually read it and, and think through it very deeply was was really refreshing. Um, they talked a lot about kind of data silos and structures, and it was a very technical chapter, I thought, but I appreciated that. And just walking through the different layers 
of the data provider and the and the data consumers. So the, the, using kind of this this federated approach where you have this this overarching architecture and each layer has has certain access and the important of, the importance of like if there's a flaw in one layer then it, it could potentially bleed into into other pieces of the stack um yeah and so i, I think it would help maybe if we uh quick outline the differences between what's being proposed and what exists now as you said nowadays healthcare data that's collected, whether it be by hospitals or healthcare insurance providers uh, or the government, they are collected and stored the same way all data mostly is nowadays, where these companies take the data they can gather, they keep it, they hold onto it, they run their algorithms that they develop in-house. And if anyone wants access to, let's say that there's a research team that wants to try to develop um some insights on how to combat, say, a global pandemic, uh, they have to go and knock on the doors and ask to try to get access to this data that's being locked up in these silos. Um, and they have to hope that they can find a way to get to it. If they can, that's probably costly and time-consuming. This new approach with this OPAL open algorithm with all these layers that we're talking about takes, say, a different approach. Rather than bringing the data to the algorithms uh instead you keep the data in a as you said a federated uh repository of sorts where there are multiple trusted uh, stewards of the data while it's encrypted and these companies these healthcare companies that want to run their algorithms instead the algorithms have to come to the data they come they select from a list of pre-approved vetted algorithms that we, that users and those trusted stewards know won't corrupt the data and uh if a healthcare insurance provider wants to run an algorithm on the data they can uh make a request to run that algorithm the algorithm is run the results are spit back to the insurance provider and but the insurance provider never gets to actually see the data. That data is still encrypted, secure, uh, like it was always meant to be. So it's it's a bit of a flip-flop rather than letting these uh, these companies hoard the data, keep them siloed, and run as many algorithms as they want on it. They now have to go to the data itself. And I think that's the fundamental difference that's being proposed here. Yeah, totally. And then at a technical angle, you have the, the decentralization and the distribution of the files across multiple nodes. And so they get into talking about how to use blockchain here. And the authors were really involved with the MIT Enigma project. And that I believe the product of a lot of that work is now Secret Network. So obviously we are, uh, we talk about Secret Network a lot, but the what I really enjoyed was was reading this technical overview of how that works. And the idea, of course, of, of layering this this decentralization into it, where you could have all of this storage across multiple machines, which would basically enforce um well, it would it, it can prevent bad actors from from doing things with the data 
that maybe other nodes would not agree with. So by having this structure, you can you can examine how how the parties are accessing the data in a way in which to to make sure you know it's almost like a self-policing network where if somebody's doing some trying to do something mm. that's not aligned with the principles of of the data exchange they can get caught uh yeah that way yeah i think that's a really important uh facet of this that if this was ever going to be used and sold on a large level would have to be messaged in a very easy to understandable way because one of the main points that the authors note and i'm going to quote here convincing individuals to reconceptualize the purpose of their health information requires building and maintaining public trust and and that whole trust angle has been a, a constant uh throughout this book because when you're reinventing these giant <laughs> nationwide systems, it's going to be an important element. But to your point, when you propose moving healthcare data, which people are especially sensitive about, which they should be, uh, it's probably, uh, you know, that we, we have those HIPAA laws. It, it, it's a section of data compared to, you know, financial or consumer data. Healthcare data is by far, I, I think, probably the most sensitive to, uh category of people's personal data. And so if you're going to propose moving that from the existing hospital and health insurance provider from the existing system onto this new federated system, who are these people that are going to be in charge of my data now? And how are we going to make sure they don't abuse it? Well, to your point, there's this system, this uh, where you split up the access among multiple people and you design it in a way where even if a few of the people within this system want to abuse it, they can't because they need a certain number of them. You basically need most of the actors that are going to be responsible for looking after this data. You, you basically need all of them to turn against all the users, which doesn't really make uh, make sense because uh, you know, yeah. you're, you're, you're undermining all of your credibility and you bring the entire system down. And uh, But yeah, that's that secret, secret sharing. Um, aspect i think you're talking about we yeah and they talk about the the using the the mpc the multi-party computation and so how you can actually with the mit enigma um employ the the computational horsepower of all these different nodes to perform these computations where their example is maybe you have patient data a patient b patient c all on different computers or something and then it's stored on different computers at different hospital systems. Maybe they are all using different software for their patient management. Maybe they, ideally that software has some kind of common format though at, at the end of the day. And I don't think that exists, but that's part of what we need to have happen for this all to work well. But then you can have a, a computers, the, the other side of the processing here would be multiple nodes actually running the average, like if you wanted to know the average of all those patients, you could then have these different nodes running that, that component of the data could be flipped to have read access, just that piece of their overall patient profile could be enabled to have read access to this certain group of nodes 
that you allowed into this ecosystem to, to examine the repositories of the data, right? Because the data, again, it's still staying at those different hospital systems infrastructure. You're not allowing people to come in and copy the data out and taking it out and exposing it to data breaches in some other place. You're keeping it where it's living. And then you have this decentralized co computer system, right? The blockchain, these different nodes, all running read access on very particular points of the data to be able to come up with like an average age. And so that's that's just one very simple example of of using all these different silos and analyzing them to draw out very valuable, potentially very valuable, valuable insights from highly sensitive data while keeping it encrypted and private so that the, the integrity is 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 still there. People hopefully can be reassured and, and learn to trust these systems. But one thing to, to drop back a little bit was that the end goal here is for the all this crazy technical stuff. Ideally, the, the front end user who's using that Opal interface or Opal driven system wouldn't even know about how all this is working at the back end. And they make that point. And a lot of people make that point about, about blockchain tech and crypto is that the real killer use case won't really be here until somebody's interacting with that system without even knowing it, right? So when the user experience is, is not different than how it is today. So I thought that was a really good example because you can extrapolate yeah. that into a lot of different things with the things we've talked about over the past couple of weeks and, and trying to figure out ways to analyze very sensitive data without exposing it and doing so in a trusted way. Um, they, they really gave <laughs> a, a walkthrough about what that could look like, I mean, from a very technical level here. So I, I really loved it. Yeah, yeah, I think at the end, they they get into some specific examples, which I just want to list off. I think it will help kind of bring the, the ideas of what the benefits could be to a very concrete, tangible level. When we think about hospital records, uh, if we were able to better share those, again, in a secure way, uh, we, we could be looking at improved hospital management, better patient treatment, uh, general discoveries about diseases without violating patient privacy or HIPAA. Um, if you're a hospital, a small hospital in northern Wisconsin, and maybe you're using an antiquated system, you have your own data, but that's about it. So if you want to see how other hospitals are run, maybe you go to a conference, maybe you, uh, I mean, I mean you're, you're on your own to try to figure that out because I think it's very unlikely that you're going to be able to get your hands on the mounds of data that these other hospitals have. Um, also with the... Well, yeah, then taking well, well, taking that a step further with like the drug discovery process, yeah. I thought was really fascinating because there are so many biotech companies out there that fail that no one ever hears about. A lot of them are funded by academic institutions or grant money or private investment. You know, nobody's bragging about their losing investments in biotech. And so it happens so frequently because it's such a binary thing. And so this could be a potentially a way to to share insights from a failed mm -hmm. a failed trial or a failed study and and share the insights so that other people can learn from your mistakes because those those mistakes that you make from a from an early stage biotech company are very valuable IP and 
once the thing fails and the biotech company's dead in the water, a lot of that right. knowledge just gets kind of thrown out and it, it dies with the company because it's it's proprietary and there's no need to publish it. But there's a lot of insights that that get, I think, lost. And so if there could be a potentially a way to share that, you know, if you're in a biotech company and it, and it fails, well, that knowledge that you learned is valuable and somebody might want to pick that up someday. How do you share that and monetize that? without, uh, I don't know, giving it away, the, economically speaking. Um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of knowledge sharing that can happen with, with this particular, this mm -hmm. thing that I'm, I'm a little bit up close to that I'm excited about, um, particularly when it comes to like genome sequencing and genetic testing. I mean, think about like 23andMe, all these people submitting <laughs> submitting their yeah. genetic uh makeup for 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 fun that's very sensitive data and, and one you, you can't really take it back once it's out there and, and like your offspring share 95 plus percent of your gna so i mean they now is it 99 percent something like that so like you you create a very long-lasting attack surface that will outlive you by by participating with something like 93andme so all i'm saying is data security and encryption around that kind of stuff is is paramount so this can be a way this solution that they talk about can be a way to achieve that i think i'm, I'm optimistic but it's you know, it could be exciting and it could be really cool to to learn some insights from all that data that companies like them are are collecting that they, they could they could share that and monetize the access to that data in a safe way for academic researchers or other early stage biotechs that could come in and and run algos on that stuff and find interesting things that that could be potentially world changing so i really like that example yeah yeah uh one of the things that that came up was the cross domain access policy where um you let's say you give your consent for the hospital you're at now to use your data in some way um the idea here is that if you give one person if you set your access preferences for one person that automatically is honored and enforced throughout all other domains and I could just see that applying across the board. You think about how many terms of service you agree to with all of our different apps uh, every time you sign up for something. And who knows what you're actually agreeing to. But it would be nice if you could just um, set your preferences for how you want your data to be treated. And then that's your that's like your data uh, access profile. That's your domain access preference. And it is to be treated... But like that's earmarked to you as if it's a part of your DNA. Um, and it, I have no idea how that work, but uh, this idea yeah. of being able to. Well, no, I, I missed that, but you, you could do that with a blockchain wallet, man. I mean, it's, we're talking about it all the time here. Like you could, you could have, uh, <laughs> you could have like an NFT system where you're holding this token that everybody has some version of and within your, Within your wallet, mm -hmm. you've, you've dictated how you want to be tracked on the websites that you're using or different companies that are you're interacting with through that wallet. And they can all be KYC. I mean, none of that has to be anonymous, but it, it could also just be 
that could be the back end. Okay. So you could remove all the frustrations around managing that from a user process, a user experience, but um, that's one thing that you, you could really do. And, and potentially that could be, that could be something that's like tied to your Apple ID and your phone, you know? And so if you're locking in with your, as you're using your phone, anything you access could mm-hmm. potentially be, you could be granting access to that wallet to, so that everybody knows, okay. Like it's, it's like when you have to agree to the cookies, on these websites, every single time you open up a new website, that could just be a setting in your oh, wallet. Yeah, like that's I think that's a, that's a perfect example. And I'll actually uh, complain a little bit about uh, I like that Apple gave me the option to ask apps not to track. But why do I have to tell every single app not to track me? I feel like if I'm doing all this on my phone, I should just be like, "Hey, Apple, tell all of these apps right off the bat." Don't track my stuff. And it's such a minor inconvenience, yeah, it, it but be, I have to it, click. It should be an opt-in, right. not an opt-out. Yeah. yeah. But it's just weird. I have to click ask app, app not to track on every single app instead of just setting like a master preference or or a, a domain access policy of sorts. So, yeah, I thought that was an idea that stuck out that I thought is actually a lot more universal than just healthcare, but also could be healthcare. You could say, I don't ever want my genetic data shared, but you can share my uh, medical history for, you know, not publicly, but in a way that allows for secure uh, metadata analysis. But uh, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. And then you could be incentivized, I mean, to, to participate. I mean, there, there's mm-hmm. ways to reward you for sharing that. And I was having this conversation with someone recently, not a little bit differently, but like when Gmail is free, right? Facebook, Instagram, these things are all free. But the reason for that is right. the cost of them to deliver these services to you is cheaper than that. The cost is lower than the the value you give to them. So they're, they're spending a fractional cost to reap significant value from you, the user. So it's like, how much different it would be if you had to maybe pay for some of this stuff, but to, to be exposed in the upside of the data generation. I mean, that's essentially what I think is going to happen here where these, these protocols and these systems that come about, you, you may be, you share, instead of, instead of just giving out everything away for free, you may be, could, could participate in the upside that your, your, gen, your data is generating. And so, I mean, maybe you pay like 10 bucks a year for an email service, but you could then say, okay, I'm going to, here's all this data that I'm generating. I'm going to either, you could have a a control panel within the app to allow sharing and scraping of certain things that could potentially recover your $10 fee, if not pay you, start paying you back. Right. And so you have an entire business model in theory where they're still doing the ad tracking and scraping of you, but at least you're opting into it voluntarily and getting compensated for it. So, yeah, I think think that's a good that's that's the pitch. And I think it's, uh, you know, maybe not everyone likes it, but at the very least, everyone can get their their privacy out of it and people who want to participate allow their data to be used and make some money off of it. Also have that option. I just think it's a better dynamic that focuses on people's preferences and their choices rather than just 
the way it is now where the their data just really isn't theirs so um well yeah i mean you have mon monopolistic companies mm -hmm. who, who now you cannot disrupt i mean you're not going to be able to disrupt the the fangs of the world without some kind of major paradigm shifting protocol like this um something that they can't just buy and kill so mm -hmm. so we right. reached a point i think where the government i mean these companies are more powerful than governments i think most might agree maybe disagree but if it was like um well, I wouldn't say they're more powerful than governments, but they certainly are more powerful than the rest of us individually so that they de facto have the loudest voice with the government. But true, true. That's a good example. That's a good point, because look at what China's doing. I mean, they're they're pretty effectively just killing, killing the <laughs> their, their tech giants. And then they're, they're reminding all their entrepreneurs who's boss by by just crushing them. Yeah, I mean, so, if, the, if the U.S. government wants to actually make some kind of regulation for tech instead of spinning their wheels they, they could but um yeah but to your point i want to bring this back to healthcare because i know someone personally that works in healthcare and has experience dealing with one of the um you know the, this this uh, conversation we're having about monopolies exists in healthcare as well specifically on uh hospital records <clears throat> and uh i said and uh, the hospitals around here in Wisconsin uh, commonly use Epic Systems, which uh, is the largest uh, hospital uh, electronic health record system in the country. They actually provide their services for 31% of hospitals. They're actually they're domiciled in Madison, Wisconsin, where, where I grew up. And uh, between them, uh, Cerner and MedTech, two other health record systems. They these three companies provide seventy two percent of all electronic health record systems for seventy two percent of hospitals in the country. So maybe not a monopoly, but pretty close to an oligopoly. And uh, those are the silos that we we talk about when we at least talk about hospital records. Uh, the data that's generated is is being generated and made available to hospital staff by these very large companies. And while there is some measure of interoperability, uh, the person I know is telling me how on the upside, other hospitals that use their own systems allow for easy exchange of data, like we've been talking about. But if you go outside of their system, for example, a hospital on Epic, uh, if you have, um, let's say you have a primary care physician whose hospital uses Epic and they want patient records for a uh, patient who used to live across the country and went to a hospital that uses Cerner, there's, there's very, it's, it becomes a record request rather than just simply looking up the records. And you run into these very, very high walls that characterize these silos. And the truth is, is that these hospitals don't have much of a choice. You, you have basically three options and these companies know it. There's a high switching costs, high upfront costs. Um, and for a lot of community hospitals, there, there's really no direct options. So uh, practically, when we, when we talk about hospital data, it's, um, it's still subject to these monopolistic type entities that we see in other areas of our economy, unfortunately. Yeah, I've, I've personally dealt with issues there because I remember I had like... <laughs> 
I had like a foot x-ray in one system that didn't have Epic. And then I came back to, it was actually out of state. It was actually out of my network. And then I came back and everyone in my home area used it. So I had to get it done again. And it was just like, damn, this is, this is crazy. I mean, how, how inefficient is that? Like, just because they can't share one. I mean, it's my data, Mm -hmm. it's my scan. Like, it's kind of ridiculous, right? Like, I'm beholden as a patient. I mean, that's that's where there's a lot of frustrating frustration. I think for most of us on the healthcare user experience in general, just because of how opaque and fragmented it is. And and yeah, I mean, that's this is this is one really disruptable part of of the economy with with using some of this data exchange technology. Yeah. Yeah. So I saved my skepticism for the end because um, I think the tough part here is going to be trying to convince people to go back to that point that the authors made, trying to convince them to reconceptualize the purpose of their health information instead of just looking at it exclusively as your health information is there for your benefit. Really, what you have to do is get people to think about it as both for their own benefit and for the benefit of society at large. Uh, and that, that may be too much to ask for people. I, I, I could see some people saying, you know what, I don't like, I don't trust the system you're trying to build. And if it doesn't help other people, fine. I just want it to be there for me. And so I guess that just kind of goes back to just how important it, it is to build trust and to have a element of transparency, accountability, and clearly explain these fairly complex IT solutions uh, when you're trying to transition to this this system we're talking about, uh, because yeah, it's 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 hard to get people to think about their own information on their bodies um, as you know in a more collectivist, more shared attitude. So I think that's that's going to be a very tough thing to do in this specific space. Yeah, I I agree with you and. You have to, I believe, incentivize the behavior. And let's let's imagine that this is a purely secure, perfect system that is incapable of being breached, and it, it, it's this miracle of technology, right? But that's quite the assumption, first of all, like what, when we're talking about this, to, to imagine this world that could exist. But I mean, look at, I mean, look at the twenty-three ME people who are just willy-nilly paying paying to give away the, their own data to a company they don't understand how they're how they're even being profited on um i mean you're sharing your most intimate data which is your dna and all these people are doing it for fun i get the appeal i would love to see my, my makeup and my history but personally i don't feel it's worth the risk um and no disrespecting done it i know a lot of people who have but it's like if people are willing to just to actually pay a hundred dollars, <laughs> they're not even being they're not even receiving compensation for their data. They're they're paying to give it away. So I would just say yeah, that it's kind of funny when you think when you phrase it that way. That's kind of hilarious that you pay someone to take your most sensitive data. Right, and then there's the outrage when their their other data is breached, and there's there should be, <laughs> but it's like. It's just kind of funny when you examine it. Um, 
because I yeah, I'll, I'll be fully, breaches, fully, but yeah, fully transparent. I did it. I was given it for Christmas along with my wife and I didn't want to do it for that exact reason that we're talking about. And so I went, I'm like, okay, fine. Let me at least see how they manage it. And they did say that they don't sell it to any third parties. I think you have to actually opt out, but also you can ask them to delete your data. And at the time I was probably felt a little pressured since someone bought me a hundred dollar gift and I, I wanted to use it. Um, and they were asking, Oh, did you get your DNA test to do it? And I was like, Oh, not yet. But, uh, <laughs> so I kind of, I think I convinced myself to buy that, but to be honest, there's nothing, I don't think there's anything preventing them from being like, Hey, we have a policy change. Now you can't tell us to delete your DNA forever. Like what would I do if they did that? I, I don't know if that's legal or not, or it's, yeah, it's it's uh, something I don't feel great about anymore. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's weird. Yeah, I feel you. Yeah, I wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, it is what it is. But I mean, that, yeah, that I'm out there. Mm-hmm. What? Oh, I'm I'm out there. I guess someone could system well, clone me. Well, I think that's good. I, I mean, if that they they allow you to get deleted if you want to get deleted, and then, um, you know, I. That's that's kind of the issue of like where I, my distrust personally, I would have a little bit of distrust with the company that they're actually going to do it, and maybe they do, maybe they maybe they don't, but I would assume people would be up in arms if they were to just make that change or or not to comply with that. Like the issue, I think is I, I agree with the issue of how do you get people to trust any of these systems because we're in such a state of distrust with almost everything. That I don't know how you recover from any of it right. other than just yeah. pointing out that with very simple incentive mechanisms, you can very easily control people or, or seek certain outcomes. So if, if you're going to be incentivized, it's the same thing with medical studies, right? Like people will accept $2,000 to try some drug at some, at some university or participate in some kind of study. You know, we do, we do have those in society where we pay people to try a therapy, um, hmm. but this is a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, and so if there's a, if there's a tokenization to form here of being incentivized, um, it could work, but, but yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I saw, I see Jenny's uh, in line here. Do you want, to, should we, should we, should we? Yeah, yeah, I think I got through the big things I want to talk about. Let's talk, yeah, let's, let's, let's take some calls. Hey, Jenny. hey guys, how you doing? Hey, good. How you doing? How's that baby, Jacob? Oh, she's napping uh, consistently. Thank you. Get a little, oh, little bit of sleep now and again. Yeah, yeah. It's I'm, I'm used to the the midnight wake up. So that's good. Yeah. Well, you guys, the, it sounds like you're not talking about that book this week. Is that the truth? We are. We are. Oh, you are. Yeah. Okay, because it didn't have a, a. I guess there was a. There wasn't a chapter heading, so that's why I was confused. Well, I, oh, you're- I'm thinking about lots of things as you're talking, and I guess the main thing I'm thinking is that I I sense that the elites, you know, out there have much more data on us than we would ever possibly guess. And I think probably because my husband works in IT, and you know, in the early '90s when he was at work, I would tell him a topic that I wanted him to go search on the internet for me for and he'd come home and he's like you just can't believe what they've got now and and then in 96 we got hooked up at home and then I was off to the races and I think 
you know, I just kind of always had this sense of like, I'm not going to live in fear of people stealing or messing with me because they have my data. And so I've always operated under my own name in chat rooms and whatnot, when everybody else is sort of using monikers and, you know, their dog's head and all these things. I was like, you know, I'm just going to be me and hope for the best. And, you know, that might be naive, but in a way it's kind of like a nod to say, look, I know they probably got everything anyway, including my medical records, including whatever. So I'm just not going to walk in fear. And so that's been my posture for the whole time I've been on the web for 25 years. And, you know, there have been some ups and downs around that. But I just think, you know, it's just Mm -hmm. good to be honest-hearted about it and say, what's really going on here instead of just believing, you know, naively believing that you can really control it? That's my take on it anyway. Yeah, I think you I've, I've heard other people kind of share your uh your your approach your attitude i think i actually share it to somewhat to some extent um I, i'm okay mostly being public about um my presence but um i, I know like i talked to my mom i she's on facebook and every time it, it, if it comes up i'm like you need to get off facebook it doesn't do anything like it's it, the negatives are, are just worse than the the few pictures you get and she's like oh, i don't care they they, they want to track my moves i have nothing to apologize for i have nothing to hide and i guess on some level i, I have a hard time arguing against that if that's if, hey, if that's how she feels that's how she feels um and you know, there are a lot more subtle, you know, the the massive amounts of data, like you said, that they already have on a lot of us um, probably mean that if you were to somehow get off the grid completely, they still have a bit of a file on you. But um, I think this really comes down to trying to just build a better system for I don't know, I don't want to say like the next generation and get too <laughs> soapboxy about it. But at the very least, it's it's a it's a different alternative. If people want to use legacy systems. People want to continue being very public and not concern themselves with privacy and secrecy online. Um, yeah, I don't think it has to be one or the other. I think both systems can, can be viable alternatives for people, but. Yeah, I think really it comes down to having a choice and eventually people will demand a choice for privacy when given that choice. But I mean, a lot of us kind of have to throw our hands up and say, well, look, I mean, if you want to be fully private and not let anyone know, I mean, you have to use a lot of crazy software and it's, it's nearly impossible. Like it's so inconvenient. I've tried to use some different Linux operating systems and it was pretty fun to like toy with them. But some of these things, it's, it's extremely difficult from a user experience and like if you're trying to use a computer productively to to do any kind of work for for a normal company or something it's it's almost impossible to not use uh windows or mac or something um to to be a power user i think well at the end of the day you have to ask yourself what what are you really afraid of what what's really gonna mess with your life and for me, I, I was a Tea Party activist in the early days. I organized some of the big events we had down at the Denver Capitol. And in the early days of that movement, it was all, all the organizing was happening online. And you started hearing whispers of people saying, the IRS is messing with me as an activist. The IRS is investigating my business. 
And so these other types of intrusions into people's lives were happening and being reported, and that didn't happen to me. But it was obviously a concern because it was happening to enough people that it was like, okay, this is a thing. And nobody wants to go through that. Nobody, whether it's your personal finances or your business, that's one of the worst things you can experience as an American. And so I was a little bit nervous about that. But my feeling was, you know, this is a freedom movement to push for economic sanity in this you know, Marxist thing that's going on with the Obama administration when they were trying to socialize a lot of industry. When he fired the head of GM, it was like, oh my gosh, the markets didn't even know how to respond. The stock market just kind of went, eh, not quite sure what's happening here because it had never happened before. So when we were organizing all these events, you know, and, and we had this fear, I had one guy say to me, how can you do this openly using your own name. Everybody knows your your name and you're in Colorado. And what's what, what are you thinking? And I said, well, this is how I explain it. When the founders signed their names to the Declaration of Independence, John Adams wrote it extra large. He said, I want the King of England to be able to see my name without using his spectacles. That was kind of the feeling I had around all this kind of, you know, conservative pushback that I'm going to do it with my own name and not walk in fear. And so I know some people had their lives messed with in a big way. I fortunately wasn't as bad as some. But, you know, this is part of just being an American. So that's how I sorted it all out. But I'll leave you guys the rest of the conversation. I, I need to go back to my delicious veggie la- lasagna here. But I love listening. So thank you. Nice. Yeah, that's, that's, really, that's really welcome feedback. Um, that's crazy, <laughs> by the way, that it was happening. But I mean, that's like the thing is with me, what I feel is like there's a lot of data that's public. I mean, if people really wanted to like connect dots, if if the feds wanted to connect dots on certain things, like I just know that at the end of the day, they're going to be able to. So like hiding certain attributes is almost fruitless, but it's almost just as well saying if you want to make the average user, the average commoner who isn't going to have the NSA in their back pocket, um, then I can see if you're trying to just, you know, res- I, I I can understand why there'd be a, a desire to to maybe not put the face on on the, the logo or something. But I usually do. I do it on my other accounts. But, um, yeah, I mean, there's there's – there's a lot of, I think people will just demand privacy more moving forward. Well, and, and it's privacy is one angle. Uh, another is just simply more secure use of your data. You, Dylan, you were talking, I, I think you might've mentioned it earlier, but like the Google data breach and just read the hundreds, if not thousands of companies that go through data breaches on what seems like a weekly basis. <clears throat> I mean, if you're a major corporation in this country, I'm pretty sure you've had a data breach at some point. And I, I think at some point, it, generally, I think people have just become almost conditioned to it. So they're a bit ambivalent. But that doesn't mean that we should continue to just accept, okay, well, companies are going to take the data that we generate and they're going to use it, profit completely 100% off of it without us seeing a dime. And at some point, it's going to get leaked. Like that doesn't, that, that shouldn't be the the option. That shouldn't be to the assumption that yep, that's the way it is. 
maybe these ideas, uh, if they're put together, even in their most perfect form, don't gain mass adoption and push the old system out. Maybe they are just a niche parallel system, but um, the idea that there's, there's some people that might not want to use it or might want to, you know, get to keep using the old systems or be public. Uh, I, I just think this has more to do with, uh, secure use of data rather than a difference between trying to retain anonymity. Yeah. Well, it's like this, these tech systems that we talk about and they talk about in the book, it's, it's tilting more around security at an infrastructure level, I think. And so there's a, there's a solid delineation, I think, between two things where one, the user you know, the average user's desire to be very private in everything they do versus, hey, we need integrity in our systems that are handling sensitive data if we want to generate broad or granular insights from the data. Like, this is the new economy where there's trillions of dollars worth of, of value to be generated. We need to make sure we're doing it the right way and responsibly. And it's irresponsible to allow these data breaches to continue. It's, it's very sickening, actually. I think um, <laughs> I, was, I was one of my early startups. I was part of Class Action App. We, um, we were trying to help people with their notifications, notifying them of class action lawsuits that they were eligible for because most people don't file or seek any remuneration from from those lawsuits because you you know you don't know about them or you just don't take the time to do it and so we were trying to automate that and what what i learned from that company which is no longer around was pretty eye-opening and just like all of our our ambivalence so, and just like we just are apathetic almost about companies being negligent and incompetent so, yeah, I, I mean, the data breach issue, it's not going away. And I mean, no, like two thirds of the, the numbers of the Equifax data breach from a couple of years ago were so bad. I mean, basically all of our social security number, anybody who's an adult in the U.S. during the time of 2016, basically, you have to basically assume that you were breached from the Equifax hack. And so your social, your address, all this crazy personal yeah. info has been has been breached because those those credit agencies have everything so right so now we're operating yeah. the, from a default point of like we are already vulnerable like we've already been breached our, our stuff's out there our most valuable data is out there already so so what do you do now um, well i mean you we, I think we've talked about this before. There's a temporal part of the value of data. Yes, you can have every bit of data I've ever, collect, I've ever created from the time I was born until now. And for the next year, that might be sufficient. But at some point down the road, that data becomes so antiquated that it loses a lot of its value. And if I've been able to keep my data um, secure um, for some amount of time, then the new data I generate is going to dwarf the value of the old stuff, the old file you have. So, um, yeah, I, I do get the argument that, hey, we're already on the grid. What can we do? But I, I don't think it'll take too long if we set up a new system uh, 
to start seeing a lot of new value come our way instead. Yeah, I'm, I'm optimistic as well. It can be done. Yeah. It has to be done. Uh, it will be done. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an exciting industry to be a part of. Um, mm -hmm. I'm pretty up close to it, so I'm really optimistic. But was there anything else? I know there was this other article that we might might want to touch on. Um, maybe, maybe we could cover that next week. I think we're running a little long. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. That sounds good. We can do that. All right. All right. Well, this has been really fun. Um, we'll be back on Saturday, I think. So we got uh, Chapter 8 coming up. Maybe Chapter 9 as well. We'll see. But um, it, eight looks pretty long. We, we might want to, but, uh, but yeah, we'll see what we want. That get sounds to. good. All right, Jake. Well, Hey, have a great rest of your day and I'll catch you on discord. Jenny, thanks for chatting with us.